and his sinister role in manipulating global populations, countries, and trying to instill this NWO agenda. Anyway, thanks for coming on, Richard. Uh, thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. Can you tell the viewers a little bit about your mission and what you do? Well, um, I write books. I've been a, a working journalist and an author uh, most of my life. Uh, I was a full-time author for about 10 years in the uh, 1990s, and I ended up uh, working for a think tank, uh, David Horowitz Freedom Center, and David and I collaborated on a book which changed my life. It was about George Soros. It was called The Shadow Party. And it was really, uh, it was really the first book. Sorry about that. It was really the, the, fir the first book that um, had exposed uh, the fact that Soros was involved in color revolutions throughout the world and uh, overthrowing governments and such. And as a result of it, I became considerably more controversial than I had been in the past. Uh, Glenn Beck uh, based his, his um, famous Puppet Master series in 2010 on our book, um, The Shadow Party. And shortly thereafter, he was kicked off Fox News. Um, I understand recently Glenn has has said that uh, he wasn't kicked off Fox News, and uh, it's not for me to say. I mean, you know, uh, but I, I there were he more or less admitted to me actually in a in an interview that we had, I think it was in 2012, where I I put the question to him, and he he basically said I paid a very high price for going after Soros. So, you know, with these high-profile corporate firings and resignations and such, there's always, well, you know, non-disparagement orders and gag orders. And so it's, I understand, you know, people can't always say everything they'd like to say. But um, my impression, you know, from my standpoint was, was uh, and it was also reported by, by other people in the trade press and so on, uh, that that the puppet master, based upon my book, the book that I wrote with uh, David Horowitz, was extremely instrumental in uh, Fox's decision to to um, to get Glenn off Fox News. So, in any case, um, as I said, uh, I, I became much more controversial than I had been in the past. And um, then in the last uh, few years, I've decided to become even more controversial by taking up the subject again in a series of articles, uh, which are published in various places, mainly on Substack. And I've basically looked at the question of George Soros more deeply than I had before and, and tried to explore uh, actually his connections with the British government which is something I had known about uh, for quite a number of years. I actually first wrote about Soros back in 1993. I've been writing about him and studying him for quite some time. So I had heard a lot, I'd read a lot about his connections with the British establishment, and I finally decided to tackle that question. It, it wasn't something I could do 
in the context of you know working for a, a think tank and and so forth. But uh, I'm doing it now, and I I addressed it uh, very directly in a recent article called "How the British Invented George Soros," and then expanded upon it in a, a whole series of articles. Uh, basically. Um, uh, did you want to interject anything before I go on to the next? Or well, okay, there are some basics. Perhaps we should go over first. Could you define globalism and tell us who invented it, how it came about? Well, globalism, as I see it, is is basically the idea of wanting to put the entire world, the entire planet, under a single world government. Um, basically, the dream of every tyrant to conquer the world. And uh, it is my contention in this very series of articles that I'm describing that the British invented modern globalism. I'll stress the word modern, the form of globalism that we are now experiencing, that we're now getting with the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and and uh, the whole UN system. And so the, the, the Anglo-American uh, transnational uh, elites so in this form, in this modern form, as we know globalism today, I believe that the British both invented it uh, basically in the early 19th century and that they are still in charge of it to this day. That, that is my primary contention in this uh, series of articles and soon to be a book. Um, of course, there was globalism before the British. There was there was Catholic globalism, uh, the, the Spanish and Portuguese empires, and their authorization by the Vatican to literally conquer the world. There was a real plan to unite the world under basically Vatican rule. Um, but what happened basically is the British cleaned their clocks and took over the, that whole operation, and so that's what we've got today. And I think in that respect, what I have to say isn't that controversial. It's pretty obvious to the casual observer that the English-speaking peoples of the world uh, are dominant on the planet now and that the English-speaking countries are very closely united in, in a, a thick mesh of transnational agreements, uh, military treaties, uh, economic so forth, uh, to the point where, in some ways, uh, they even their very sovereignty as as individual countries could be questioned. Uh, the Five Eyes Intelligence Treaty being being a case in point there, and so I don't think there's anything mysterious or uh, conspiratorial about that. The fact that the English speaking world has united in an unprecedented way, especially since World War II, and that we do, in fact, control the world uh, in a way which is equally unprecedented. The question that's controversial and the one that I'm trying to tackle is who actually controls this, this behemoth? Who controls this great power? The natural assumption most people have is that it's the United States, simply because we're bigger the biggest, the seemingly most powerful militarily, perhaps even financially. 
My contention, however, is that the British are still in control of the system for the simple reason that they invented it. They invented and structured it in a particular way to be to their advantage and not to ours. It was always their project from the beginning and drawing the United States into this system was likewise a British project, which they pursued for many decades and finally succeeded in doing. And they didn't, they didn't bring the U.S. into this global system for the purpose of displacing or uh, replacing themselves. They brought us in because they wanted to add our power to the, the existing power of, of the global system they had already created, the British Empire, its global trade system, and its, its global financial system. And so this is the part that I am writing about now, is how, how actually does it work? How do they do it? And my contention is that basically that British intelligence is the key, that, that if you have the most powerful, the most competent, the most ruthless, and basically the best intelligence service in the world, and I contend that the British do have all that, and if there is no other equal to it, uh, it is my contention that that puts you in a position of power much more than the number of aircraft carriers uh, or hypersonic missiles or other sorts of hardware you can float. And the simple reason for that is that aircraft carriers and you know military institutions in general are run by people. And if you control the... Uh, the intelligence world, if your intelligence is the best, if your intelligence capabilities are the best, you can control the people. You can control those critical people positioned at critical checkpoints and control them in all the ways that are traditional in, in the intelligence community, primarily various forms of coercion and blackmail. And I think uh, some of the uh, revelations we're getting about uh, the Epstein network and other similar operations. If you control those types of networks, if you control those types of operations, then it really is not at all implausible that a seemingly small and insignificant, well, certainly not insignificant, but a small country like England could control larger ones especially because uh, England has always been small um, and it has always formulated its foreign policy, its statecraft and its intelligence activity in such a way as to specialize in the very project of influencing and even controlling much larger countries. And uh, for, for for example, India, I, I have read that uh, at certain points in the British uh, direct occupation of India, that, that British troops were outnumbered uh, as much as four to one and even more. And yet this was no challenge to uh, the British ability to rule India because they ruled through influence networks and through what is called soft power, through 
the psychological and institutional control they had over those Indian troops. And usually, um, in most cases, didn't have to worry about their loyalty. So my contention is that the lessons which the British learned throughout their uh, their extraordinary uh, period of growth and empire building, these very skills of learning as a small country to control larger countries, that these lessons are still being applied. And now they're being applied to the specific project of finalizing the project of global government. And when I say that the British invented modern globalism, uh, I'm referring to very, very specific things that, that I've, uh, I've found in my research. Uh, as early, well, actually, going back to the Napoleonic Wars, and, and this part of it, my friend Noor bin Laden actually discovered, she brought it to my attention some months ago, that there were specific plans for a so-called peace league and a form of global government that were being formulated even even during the Napoleonic Wars and which were to some extent put into effect in the Congress of Vienna in 1815. Because of course, after the defeat of Napoleon, the British had, had taken out what was then their greatest enemy, France, and France basically became a vassal of, of England. And so the enthusiasm for global government became very pronounced at that time. And throughout the 19th century, as the British Empire grew, it began to seem inevitable that eventually the entire world was going to be united under British rule. And the idea of a peace league, the, the, the term peace league was often used in some of these earlier writings in the 19th century. Um, Alfred Lord Tennyson, the poet, in his poem Loxley Hall, referred to a parliament of man. And he was referring to the same thing. This was back in the 1840s, I think, when he wrote Loxley Hall. And he this wasn't just a the imaginings of a poet. He, he, he was very much tied in with the secret societies and, and some of these occultic groups which, were, which had been envisioning a world under British rule, actually back to Elizabethan times, back to Francis Bacon and, and his famous concept of the New Atlantis, his book by that name, in, in which he essentially foretold something like globalism. So this was an idea that was pushed through certain secret societies and, and occultic societies, and Tennyson was privy to that. And it is widely understood that his, his poem, in which he foretold a parliament of man and, and a world under a global government, was in fact, um, a quasi-official uh, uh, celebration and announcement of these plans which were actually being made by British elites. And of course, Tennyson uh, somewhat later became the, the official uh, poet laureate of Queen Victoria. He, he was quite well connected, not only in the world of British government, but, but also in the world of the British uh, occult, the, the Theosophical Society and, and groups of that nature. 
But also, interestingly, I, I don't mean to dwell too much on Tennyson, but I want to make it clear that he was not just speaking for himself when he wrote of globalism. Uh, his poem has been widely regarded by by Anglo-American globalists right down to the present day as exactly what I'm describing, as a, a almost sacred text of the globalist movement. Uh, Winston Churchill praised this poem explicitly in the 1930s as having been a harbinger of the League of Nations. Uh, Harry Truman is said to have carried a copy of this poem on his person at all times. And there are many, many stories like this. It, it was literally a sacred text of the globalists, uh, both British and American. But in addition to that, uh, we, as we move into the 1880s, 1890s, it becomes very explicit that there was a concrete plan which uh, very prominent British statesmen and uh, journalists and other sorts of uh, elite policymakers began writing about in books uh, for the public and making no secret of it. And uh, one of these was uh, William T. Stead, uh, possibly the greatest, uh, most famous uh, British journalist of the 19th century. And he was also uh, tied in with uh, the same network of um, occultic slash nationalist uh, secret societies or imperial secret societies which eventually gave us the so-called roundtable group. And uh, what I mean by that, some people may not be familiar with that whole story, but basically there was a group that emerged out of Oxford University in the 1860s, 1870s. It included such men as Cecil Rhodes and uh, John Ruskin was a, um, a, a leader of this group. He was a professor at Oxford. And it sort of began, in fact, with the movement of Ruskinites, followers of John Ruskin, who famously, I think in 1870, he gave a speech stating that, that England must uh, reign or die, by which he meant that it must rule the earth or be ruled by others. And these Ruskinites, which included Cecil Rhodes and others, eventually uh, they formed a secret society called the Round Table, which was dedicated to what they called Imperial Federation. And their goal was to expand the British Empire, to continue expanding it as much as they could, to consolidate it so that it would be under a more centralized rule. But then most importantly, the, what they wanted to do was to bring the United States of America back into the fold, to bring it back in some formal uh, relationship with the British Empire. And this, they re for obvious reasons, they regarded as key to making the whole project work. And so uh, this one of the um, linchpins of this, this element of the project, bringing the U.S. back, was, was personally put forth by Cecil Rhodes in, uh, I think, his first uh, Last Will and Testament and uh, another document that was called his um, Articles of Faith or something like that, where he said that it was necessary to bring the U.S. back into the empire. Now, different versions of this plan were put forth, and in the 1890s, there was uh, really a kind of full-court press by these um, 
imperial uh, federalists to reach out to the United States to form uh, associations with like-minded people in the U.S., of which they found many, and to try to organize uh, a concrete plan for bringing the two countries together in some kind of formal uh, alliance initially and ultimately beneath the global government. And there were several plans. Cecil Rhodes, in his original plan, wanted to bring the U.S. back as a sort of dominion in a subservient role comparable to Canada, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, W.T. Stead, who was an older man and who appears to have been some sort of mentor or even handler of Cecil Rhodes, he, after about 10 years of this lobbying in which... uh, the the uh, the round table was well it wasn't called the round table then but this this group of men um for about 10 years they were really pushing hard uh to try to get the US to go along with this plan of basically merging with the United Kingdom and wt stead wrote a book in 1901 called the americanization of the world in which he tried to sweeten the deal for the americans by saying well look uh, we can, if we, if you join us and become part of this English-speaking super state that we want to create, we can put the capital in Washington, and we can unite under the stars and stripes instead of the Union Jack. Now, there's some people, and some of some who are my personal critics on uh, Twitter, who say, "Well, Poe, you see that proves you're wrong, because if Stead made such a proposal." to the United States, it's just the opposite of what you're saying. He was offering subservience to the United States rather than the other way around. But in the 1890s, there was no way that uh, England foresaw any possibility of being subservient to the United States, nor did it have any desire to do so, and certainly not W.T. Stead, who was one of the leaders of of this, this Imperial Federation movement. He was obviously offering this as an inducement to try to break down uh, what up to a lot of um, objections coming from the American end. And not just the Americans, you know, the Australians, the New Zealanders, uh, the South Africans. Everyone was coming up with objections of one kind or another. Excuse me. Thanks for all your questions, everybody. We are, however, getting near the hour, so I don't think we're going to get any of those in. I've got one for Richard. Let's see what he says. Um, Please feel free to break in. I I don't want to just keep rambling if you've got questions. Yeah, I've got a question. So if the Brits grandfathered the system, has not the power now been displaced by the might of America? Well, no, I don't think so, for the reason that I had said before. I, I, I think even in World War I, it was pretty clear that American physical power, American military power, was undoubtedly superior to that of England. But it's very clear, and I've written about this at some length, that uh, the Will, Woodrow Wilson administration in particular was completely penetrated by British intelligence. There was a man named Colonel Edward House who was uh, 
Wilson's closest advisor. In fact, some perceived that he had a kind of Svengali-like hold on Wilson that was almost uh, unnatural, it seemed. And uh, Colonel House was actually a British uh, agent. He was a British operative. He was very close friends with a man named uh, William Wiseman, who was the, the British station chief for MI6 at the time. And he stayed in, that is, this man, Colonel House, stayed in constant touch with uh, the the um, the British government, especially the the um, Edward Gray, I think was his name, the 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 minister, the Secretary of State, or whatever they called him, and so it can be seen very clearly that all of the policies of the Woodrow Wilson administration were essentially dictated from London and conveyed to Woodrow Wilson through. Uh, this Wiseman and and his agent, uh, Colonel House, and that Wilson reflexively and dutifully executed uh, virtually every order he received from London in this way, including uh, forming the League of Nations. Uh, Wilson himself, you know, most of us were brought up uh, learning in school that Woodrow Wilson was the father of globalism and specifically of the League of Nations. And yet, it's a matter of record that that um, Ed, Sir Edward Gray wrote a letter to Colonel House in 1915, I believe, where he clearly said, "Look, we want to form a peace league after the war is over, and we would like President Wilson to propose this as his own idea because we think it will be better received coming from a U.S. president than from us." And Colonel House said, sure, I'll be happy to arrange that. And he did. So uh, when you study the Wilson administration, how it really worked, it's very clear that the Wilson administration was really run by British intelligence. And this despite the fact that even at that early date, uh, the U.S. was arguably the greatest military power in the world. Uh, certainly when we entered World War I, that was the final blow to the Axis powers. I, and, I, I agree, Richard, I agree with all that. We've, we've almost run out of time. Let me, let me just ask you, add one thing to that then. So it's 2023, and you said that this uh, edge is being maintained by superiority of intelligence agency information. You, are you yes. saying that presently the British in 2023 still have... The leading edge worldwide, and and how how have they sustained that versus China, the Mossad, and the CIA, and all these other agencies? We've got two minutes left. Well, I, I simply because I, I think that British intelligence is centuries old, and it is it is simply superior to those other agencies you mentioned. The the CIA was actually created with the help and training of the British. The, the British advisors were coming to the United States to help us create a foreign intelligence service even before World War I, precisely because they had this plan that they wanted the U.S. to be their military ally and to help them rule the world. But our intelligence was just not up to snuff, and they made sure that it was. They came here and they trained us. And the same goes for the Mossad as well. Uh, as for the Russian intelligence, I, I don't share many people's confidence in their their supposed um, 
skills. I, I don't think they were ever that good. I don't think the German intelligence was ever that good. I think a lot of that, quite frankly, are British propaganda narratives uh, that were put out to um, make themselves, that is, make the British seem less capable in the intelligence field and to and to uh, inflate the reputation of their enemies, uh, sometime enemies, the Russians and the Germans, uh, much more than they ever deserved. And I think even our CIA is no match for the British MI6. My opinion, take it for Thank what you will. All right. Thanks, Richard. Can you let the viewers know where they can find your work and support you, please? Well, I tweet on Twitter at Real Richard Poe. I have a website, richardpoe.com. I have a Substack. Uh, you can get my books on Amazon. Uh, I think that covers it. Well, thank you for spending time with us. Absolutely fascinating journey down history there about globalism and the uh, power of the British Empire. And uh, we wish you all the best. And thanks for spending time with us, Richard. Cheers. Thank you, Sean. Take care. Bye.